0: Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nero Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. Hello, everyone. Uh, Thanks again for joining us for this week's episode of the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks. Uh, I'm joined today with uh, Dr. Brian Feely from UCSF Sports Medicine. Uh, This is Dr. Drew Lansdowne, also with UCSF Sports Medicine. Unfortunately, Dr. Narav Pandya is uh, currently in, won't be joining us today, Uh, but we are joined today with uh, Dr. Brian Cole. Um, He is a professor of sports medicine and orthopedic surgery at Rush University of Chicago. Uh, He is also the managing partner for Midwest Orthopedics, uh, the orthopedic group there. Um, He is uh, the head team physician for the Chicago Bulls. Uh, He helps take care of the Chicago White Sox, Uh, He's a real leader and innovator in our field, um, and really an expert on uh, cartilage injuries, uh, cartilage restoration, um, and everything in sports medicine. Um, And it's uh, especially a privilege for me, um, as Dr. Cole is one of my uh, mentors, I was fortunate to do some training with him. So uh, Dr. Brian Cole, thank you so much for joining us today and really look forward to talking with you.
1: Uh, Me as well. Thank you. And I'm honored to be here.
0: Uh, so, um, Dr. Cole, we know you know a big focus of your practice is on treating cartilage injuries. Um, what kind of symptoms or problems um, do patients with cartilage injuries uh, co- commonly come in with?
1: Well, from a uh, distribution or epidemiologic point of view, patients with cartilage problems most commonly will present with issues pertaining to the knee. That's probably still the number one joint that's involved with cartilage problems that would drive the patient uh, to the office. But like any orthopedic condition, uh, pain and loss of function are probably the two most common complaints that an individual will have. And that's kind of how someone will know, hey, do I have a problem or not? And that would be elevated, elevated levels of discomfort, specifically related to activities, and then uh, uh, then an associated loss of function. And then it might have other sort of peripheral signs that a patient might acknowledge, such as loss of motion and swelling. Why do you think Uh, cartilage injuries are so
2: challenging to treat. I mean, I think we spend probably what seems like a third of our healthcare dollars, as well as a lot of our time and effort in treating cartilage injuries, but it seems like we haven't really made that much progress.
1: I would agree with you. I think we've made almost no progress as it relates to disease modification or prevention. Um, If you just take the entity of osteoarthritis, which is loss of cartilage and maybe structural changes that develop in in the bone, that is one of our largest uh, socioeconomic uh, dividers it's also uh, you know there's 50 to 60 million people that are affected in some way uh, due to osteoarthritis or loss of cartilage so the, the primary reason that we like to talk about is that uh, it's once injured it doesn't heal but I think it's a lot more it's actually more basic than that because most people don't injure their cartilage uh, there's a great expression by Atul Gawande who's a general surgeon who wrote is written several books but one book that he wrote is called uh, being mortal and there's an expression he uses in there that he says we're sort of rotting from the inside out, and and that's kind of what happens with cartilage problems. We are, in, uh, you know, we are cartilage is designed to last in the perfect situation maybe eighty to a hundred years, but most of us who develop arthritis have some genetic predisposition that you or I cannot control, and uh, that's the crux of the issue is that we're just built this way to break down over time. Uh, we just don't know it until we get pain, swelling, go to a doctor, get an x-ray, or get an MRI, and all of a sudden, the world comes crashing down, that we have a cartilage problem that's probably been brewing for some time.
2: Yeah, you brought up a couple really interesting points with with that last comment. Um, You said cartilage lasts 80 to 100 years in a perfect situation. How do you think injuries affect the lifespan of cartilage in the knee? Because I think oftentimes what we think about is if you have a meniscus injury or an ACL injury, those are meniscus or ACL injuries. How does that affect the cartilage and its lifespan?
1: So in the absence of injury and a healthy individual, even with uh, say genetic, normal genetic programming to sort of maintain cartilage with some degeneration over time, I would say that's the most likely individual who's gonna get the 80 to 100 years. Uh, there's no question that, that, that injury plays a role. One of the challenges, we don't really know how to define injury. There's the easy ones that you alluded to, which is, uh, yeah, I tear my meniscus, which is the soft C-shaped cartilage in the knee, or I have a traumatic event that injures uh, the ACL. We know that uh, a definitive, uh, significant part of the population after ACL injury or after losing their meniscus will go on to develop x-ray evidence of arthritis at 10 years. Uh, The fascinating thing is that those individuals need another 5 to 10 years before they ever become symptomatic. So if you're someone in their 50s or 60s, like it or not, you're not going to likely live long enough if you lose your meniscus at that age to develop arthritis. It's the individuals who are younger who sustain an ACL tear, which even as an independent variable can lead to the premature incidence of arthritis as that person ages, absent of meniscal tears, Um, in addition to a meniscal tear which living long enough can in some but not all lead to developing arthritis so short answer is injury clearly plays a role and I would say that if we want to make a difference realistically in preventing disease we should be looking at injury prevention uh, because that's probably our lowest hanging fruit uh, even more so than some pharmacologic way to modify disease which would be the holy grail we're just I think unfortunately very far from that
2: yeah, it's interesting that, you know, I sit on a lot of study sections for the NIH and I, about five years ago, there were, there were a fair amount of potential disease modifying agents that would come up in our small business uh, review sections, and I don't really see them that often anymore. I think, I, I hope um, scientists better than me aren't giving up on the ability to modify the disease process, especially after injuries. I want to ask you one other thing that you brought up. You said that um, cartilage injuries is a socioeconomic divider. Um, what did you mean by that?
1: Well, if you just look at the, the impact of musculoskeletal care uh, on our GDP, on our healthcare, in the, health, the burden on the healthcare system, it is, I think, second to maybe cardiovascular disease, the largest burden to uh, our healthcare system. And osteoarthritis is the largest segment of that. Now, obviously, back pain um, and trauma play a significant role, but run-of-the-mill osteoarthritis and cartilage damage is this is the substance of what's driving the healthcare economy, I think, especially as it relates to musculoskeletal medicine. There's lots of other interesting things that you and I deal with on a regular basis, you know, rotator cuff and, you know, uh, 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 soft tissue injury and hamstring tears and and, you know, broken bones and things of that nature. But everything really pales in comparison to the burden that cartilage damage brings to our society. And so,
0: you know, when we are seeing these patients um, with either cartilage injury, early arthritis, more moderate arthritis, um, you know, we're always trying like, non-surgical treatments first um, and hoping to, you know, modify the symptoms and, uh, you know, maybe someday modify the disease process. But uh, one common treatment that comes up is uh, injections and um, an injection into the joint can be a great option, um, help with symptoms. Um, but then we got a lot of patients who are concerned about the downside of steroid injections, um, cortisone injections. What are your thoughts on um, a steroid injection into the knee joint?
1: So, you know, I'll back up and just lay the sort of set the table. I think that um, patients, um, the first thing is deciding does a patient need treatment and um I think that the, the most basic understanding of how you make that decision is predicated on, does an individual's symptoms rise to a level that they no longer wish to be active or try to be active with those symptoms? Do they want to feel better? What's important to understand is that the mere presence of arthritis doesn't should not lead to a, an immediate recommendation to give up activities. There actually is insufficient data to tell an individual that, if you are active with a known diagnosis of arthritis that you will make that disease worse. So the first thing in terms of managing patients, and if you are a patient with arthritis, is to understand that in general, you probably pay a bigger price by giving up activities than remaining active in the setting of arthritis. And the association with disease progression is not, the nexus is not readily established in our literature. Now, there's exceptions to that. But suffice it to say, if you're a person who has arthritis, you say, well, I need to not run, I need to not bike, I need to not do A, B, and C, the consequences of being inactive are far worse than being active in the the progression of disease. So let's just say that an individual understands that, yet they say, great, all good, I'll try to tough it out, but I don't want to, and I want to feel better. Then that patient arrives to the level where they need treatment. And treatment sort of falls into two categories. Non, I don't want to say conservative, because even non-surgical treatment could be not conservative. I'll just say non-surgical and surgical treatment. And Drew, what you're alluding to is the non-surgical treatment that involves the use of injections. And you could call them sort of orthobiologics if you want to. I would not call them regenerative therapies. I would discourage any individual listening or seeking uh, help to get away from the, the, the concept at this point of regenerative options to restore the joint. That doesn't mean we can't modify symptoms and make people feel better, which is really what you and I do every single day. Uh, but we're not in the business at this point of making, of rewinding the clock and making things normal. And then when you get to the uh, non-surgical treatment that involves injections, yes, steroid injections are one of those things that we can do. And my personal feeling is that steroid injections are a wonderful way to treat patients. There are two consequences potentially of steroid injections. Uh, patients, On the patient lens, they say, well, it's just a Band-Aid. The answer is everything we do is a Band-Aid. It just depends how long you want the Band-Aid to stay on and how long you have to live with your disease. There isn't a single thing that you and I do that in and of itself is permanent and it's all related to their activity level and how long they're going to be around existing with their disease. So even knee replacement is a temporary solution for some. So the issue is what's the insult uh, and the that, that sort of hassle and economic factor that a patient wants to expose themselves when they invoke the I want to be treated paradigm. A steroid injection can indeed provide relief in some with the two basic considerations that people bring up frequently. One is that repeated steroid injections in a very short interval of time over a uh, two year period might or could cause differential progression of arthritis compared to those who do not get it. The challenge is that we don't, that, that one study that's often quoted is not how we behave clinically. When a patient doesn't get a response for at least say three to four months, most of us don't keep plugging away at giving steroid injections. And most patients don't wanna keep getting one. So the negative effects on cartilage, if it's a real phenomenon, I think is not really part of the narrative with a patient. And I educate them as such. The worst case scenario is that there was a 0.1 millimeter difference in patients over a two-year period in terms of their cartilage thickness, uh, getting injections every three to four months over two years. That is not a clinically important number. That being said, it's not what you and I do in the office. The other potential negative effect of a steroid is that there is some data that says that if you are operated on within three months of a steroid injection for either a shoulder or a knee surgery... Uh, you might or could have a slightly higher incidence of an infection. I will tell you that I'm not sure, I've, I've appreciated that in my practice. That being said, that's the one area where you might want to modify your decision making because there are a few studies that have suggested the slight increase in infection rates in joint replacement or rotator cuff repairs in an individual who's had a steroid injection. Now, there are other studies that show detriment and so forth, but Arguably, I think it's a win if you can keep a patient out of the operating room because the reality is you only have two decent options for patients who have overt arthritis. And I'm not talking about little areas of cartilage loss. I'm talking about overt arthritis. Because we can talk about the other group if you wish, you know, which is the area I know you're probably interested in, which is cartilage restoration, where they're not arthritic, but they have smaller areas involved, but that you and I can actually do a very good job. But the space for surgery in the arthritic patient is really arthroscopy, meaning going in and cleaning it out with a small camera and getting rid of disease uh, in terms of debriding it, getting rid really the peeling paint and the biologic burden, or joint replacement. And the, 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 it's not always particularly gratifying to do arthroscopy in the setting of arthritis alone. Uh, and joint replacement is a wonderful operation in the right patient. But then we also have, and I'll stop after this to you know, sort of let you move on with your questions, another very large group of patients, not nearly as large as the arthritic patients, who have limited disease, who you and I can help with cartilage repair procedures that are treated much differently than those who might otherwise get cortisone injections. Yeah, I wanna back
2: up to something you said at the start of that. You said remaining active is key, and I think that's really something that's hard to get through to patients, but super important. How do you counsel patients when they have, let's say, mild to maybe early moderate arthritis in their knee, and they, um, they basically want to stay active but are afraid that they're gonna cause more damage. And I, you know, I think we run into this a lot either with meniscus tears um, or early arthritis. How do you je- balance that when you talk to patients in terms of risking pain versus having some e- um, extension of their
1: injury? Yeah, I, to me, this is like one of the most fascinating topics in the office. It's the first thing I bring up. I, al- I almost always say to the patient, If you knew that you could leave this office and do nothing other than walk out with the information that you being active is not known to definitively cause the progression of disease, and if you could tolerate the level of discomfort you have, whether it's ice or you take a Tylenol or you take an anti-inflammatory, and you could function at an acceptable level, if you knew that you would not cause progression of disease or end up in a different place later on, can you leave my office now and we'll treat you later when it's intolerable? And I would say about 30% of the patients that come to my office are just fine with that and no treatment is rendered. We are in the business of providing reassurance. That's what we do. And patients need reassurance to that point. The second question I say is, look, if that's not acceptable to you, that bit of knowledge, uh, which we, and this is research that we've done looking at the world's literature on exposure in uh, the NCAA to younger athletes with known arthritic change. It's also work that's been done in marathoners. And I am comfortable telling a patient that, look, the world is full of patients, of individuals that are rotting from the inside out and have no idea that they have arthritis. In NBA players, 40% of them who are 18 to 21 years old who come through the NBA combine have arthritis in their knee. We've published this. None of them have symptoms. And none of them should get a shortened contract with a team because they have a diagnosis of arthritis, in my opinion. So, So unless they've had symptoms and treatment, that's different but the incidental pickup of some arthritic change is just the, what we have in life. And the more sensitive the test is, the more likely we are to pick it up. So that's the narrative that I have with my patients.
0: And earlier you mentioned um, you know, orthobiologics and um, you know, that you know, includes everything from platelet-rich plasma, um, bone marrow aspirate, um, all sorts of other um, injections um, on the biologic spectrum. Um, are you using these regularly in your practice, and um, what kind of results are you seeing?
1: Yeah, so I know I noticed you carefully picked your words, which is you didn't use the word regenerative and you didn't use the word stem cells, which you know you must be very well trained. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, my point is, I think all of us are sort of many, not all, are queuing in. You know, th- there is the the burden that we see in our communities, but the bottom line is that we are in the business of modifying disease. Steroid injections can modify disease, not modifying, modifying symptoms, forgive me. In other words, reducing or treating symptoms. So platelet-rich plasma, where we draw blood, spin it down in a centrifuge to get an increased number of platelets relative to sort of what we walk around in a baseline, they are are, uh, specialized cells that have growth factors that can reduce or inhibit the inflammatory process associated with arthritis. It will not regenerate cartilage in the setting of an injection in the office, but it might actually modify symptoms just like a steroid injection. Uh, there are other things like hyaluronic acid or a lubricant, which might or could do the same. So in my practice, I do like PRP. I th- I think we're going to see that plate-the-rich plasma is a, will become, in some circles, a dominant treatment strategy for the treatment of knee arthritis, and it will fall into the armamentarium. The challenge is that it has not been the subject of a uh, full-on, uh, what we say, you know, uh, uh, BLA or biologic investigation like a drug. So there are no FDA labeling or indications for the use of PRP as it relates to arthritis. And one would consider it as off-label use. More importantly, from a patient's perspective, that means there is really no chance that insurance will reimburse it and there's an out-of-pocket expense. So patients start to uh, think about their treatments differently when they know that they have a a personal expense associated with it. Uh, That being said, if money didn't matter, I would argue that uh, in my practice, a combination of platelet-rich plasma with a high molecular weight hyaluronic acid in a series of three injections is as good as anything I do and has been associated with some of the better, more predictable outcomes. Um, It it is yet to be proven in a a clinical trial for exactly as I just described it, but I can cite a number of uh, level one, evidence-based studies that would support the use of PRP as good or better than corticosteroids or hyaluronic acid or more importantly placebo because placebo does a pretty good job too in making people feel better.
2: Yeah, I think it's fascinating that we often compare to hyaluronic acid um, because the studies, and particularly the one that I usually cite is the one that you all did a few years ago, hyaluronic acid in and of itself doesn't seem to work all that well for a lot of patients, yet insurance covers that, and even though it's gotten harder to get it paid for, it seems to cover, or insurance seems to cover probably about two thirds of our patients and I've maybe had one patient in the last three or four years that has had an insurance that even would consider covering PRP. Um, How do do you feel about some of the more, I don't want to say advanced treatments, but the other biologic-based treatments such as bone marrow um, aspirates or fat aspirates as a treatment for arthritis?
1: So, uh, you know, individuals will use bone marrow, which has some specialized cells that if you put them in a test tube, they might behave like a stem cell, but the way we use them, they produce growth factors. Also, bone marrow concentrate has an elevation of platelet-rich as PRP. It has a five to seven increase of platelets. So there are some good things in bone marrow that we can harness um, and use as an injection that might also modify symptoms. Um, I think the, there is a lot more data as a result of clinical investigations. On PRP versus bone marrow concentrate, I would as as used for the treatment of osteoarthritis. So I would argue that um, intuitively, bone marrow concentrate makes a lot of sense. It has IL-1 receptor antagonist. It has a several-fold increase in platelets. It has some monocytes or cells that have stemness in a test tube, but not the way they function in our joints. Intuitively, you would expect that it might or could do something, but the burden is much higher in the office for that versus a cortisone injection or even PRP, because let's face it, it's a surgical procedure. It's not, it isn't, it's, it isn't more invasive than the, the former two, the PRP and the, and, the, and the steroids. So my personal practice is I don't use it in the office because it's inefficient. I don't know that it's better. It's more costly. Uh, I do use it in the operating room as an adjunct to surgery because it's easy and it's, uh, you're already in the operating room and it's very, and the patients have no discomfort. But I always tell patients that it's clearly still considered experimental, investigational. It has nothing to do with regenerating cartilage and might have nothing to do with the ability for a stem cell to differentiate into anything that resembles normal tissue. It may have everything to do with the ability to modify symptoms, reduce inflammation, uh, and maybe pain pathways. So I do use it in the operating room. Uh, If money didn't matter, I would pick bone marrow concentrate or if people are... Uh, uh, leaning towards the role of adipose tissue. There's a you know a narrative that goes on, what's better using fat or bone marrow? We're not gonna probably have the time to go into that here, but both of them are sort of on the table as options to provide growth factors either through, the, uh, various, through various cell populations that are present in either of those tissues.
0: Uh, so you keep, um, I think, very responsibly steering away from um, the word regenerative. Um, but then we hear a lot of you know clinics claiming uh, like regenerative capabilities, and um, what is your thought like the proliferation of um, these injection clinics and um, you kind know, of the the role that they're having in um, kind of miseducating our patients?
1: It's a problem, um, as uh, we I know all you know both of you recognize because it's a regu- relatively unregulated space, although the FDA is watching it carefully. And uh, people are unfortunately making claims of successful clinical outcomes and uh, alluding to preventing the need for you know joint replacement, or re- and they allude to the concept of regenerating tissue like the ACL or cartilage. And that um, is, uh, couldn't be further from the truth. So it's up to us to behave responsibly. You know, the, the big challenge of being a physician is to use your authority in a very responsible, Objective way, uh, and not for your own personal gain. It's a little like taking care of a professional team. To be quite frank, I can, you know, our job is never to be a fan. Our job is never to let the the thrill of winning uh, uh, ex- supersede good clinical judgment. Professional athletes are our patients, just like act- active people who don't earn their living in professional sports. And our job is to is their safety and to make them well. Um, we can influence decision making in ways that are probably unparalleled because when patients are ill and don't feel well, they are also desperate and um, looking for hope and are willing to pay for hope. And even if you, it's fascinating, I can talk to a patient and talk them out of the concept of how stem cells are really not functioning as stem cells. They're really not regenerating anything. And the next thing they'll say is, oh, I've read all about stem cells. I know all about it. And my neighbor got it. And you know where can I sign up I mean I can't even talk a patient out of it and they won't pay their copay you know or their deductible they find that you know absurd but they'll spend three to five thousand dollars on average for a quote stem cell injection that doesn't do anything other than potentially modify their symptoms so it is a little bit of buyer beware I think you know, uh, you know Brian and Drew I mean you are like-minded and and like me, I'm sure you spend a good part of your days trying to help re, reorient patients who come in with expectations that don't match uh, clinical reality. And we just have to continue doing uh, you know, uh, the work we do and do it well and, and, and be ethical along the way. Now I'm going to switch gears a little
2: bit and talk about surgery for cartilage injuries. What's your approach to patients with early arthritis who do end up as surgical candidates? How do you talk to them about what surgeries work and how importantly do you counsel them about expectations after that surgery?
1: So doing surgery for osteoarthritis without meniscal tears, I tell patients is um, uh, uh, no better than a 50-50 proposition. Uh, Not that 50% of the time they will do worse, just 50% of the time they may get no appreciable response. Arthroscopy, for example, we use a camera to clean out the joint, is, is, is a tool that's along the spectrum of treating patients with arthritis. It is only, I think, applicable in, in the narrative or discussion for some patients. The big challenge is that patients often have meniscal tears and arthritis that exist concomitantly. And my, in the knee, my knee population, my number one second opinion is a patient who was told they had a meniscal tear but also had concomitant osteoarthritis. And they were told that the MRI showed a meniscal tear. It'll be a 15, 20 minute procedure, a quick recovery, and you should do beautifully. And yet they don't do well. They have no change in their symptoms despite going through a surgical procedure. Now it's not a dangerous operation generally, and the risks are very low, but I think any surgical procedure that doesn't deliver is, is, is a real problem. And that's our number one risk is not a blood clot or an infection or a nerve injury. It's that we're going to do something that a patient's not going to get a benefit from. And, um, and it's, it, it, the burden is higher when you're making an incision than it is, say, giving a cortisone injection. So um, uh, suffice it to say, arthroscopy has a limited role, but it's, again, about managing expectations. I would say new onset, true mechanical symptoms that are painful, uh, that are supported by x-ray or maybe MRI evidence of flaps or loose pieces floating in the joint of bone and cartilage. Unstable meniscal tears that are, uh, present with characteristic clinical exam findings, in addition to underlying arthritis, uh, the acute change in symptoms after an event that are more along the joint line that you might think are related to, say, meniscal pathology in the setting of underlying arthritis, those are patients who might benefit. Patients who have recurrent effusions, meaning a significant swelling, and the joint lining is really inflamed, and they just get these awful this awful swelling in their joint, they might respond to an arthroscopy, taking the joint lining out, and so forth, knowing that the symptoms will likely come back at some point, and the relief could be incomplete so it 's a lot like talking about stem cells and regenerative medicine it 's how you counsel a patient. I think it has a role, and I think the role is better for some than others, and I think there's others who will simply not get any response uh, and it 's rare, but it could happen that some people could get worse and and that 's the forty to sixty year old woman. Who has a meniscal tear and underlying arthritis who goes in and gets an arthroscopy because of a meniscal tear who then within a month does profoundly worse because there's a a consequence of uh, the underlying disease process in the bone uh, that we occasionally see called spontaneous osteonecrosis. It's very rare but it, it is thought or believed to be potentially related to an arthroscopic insult. We don't know that for sure. Bottom line is there's nothing, surgery is not free. You have to make an informed decision and categorically, it's not a definitive treatment for patients with symptomatic arthritis. Um, and then, when treating, you know, the more
0: isolated cartilage injuries, where either we're um, restoring cartilage um, with, uh, you know, transplanting, you know, autograft the patient's own cartilage tissue and allograft, or uh, even using cell-based tissue to resurface the area. Uh, when you're doing these types of procedures in the highest level athletes. What are you recommending to them uh, regarding activity afterwards?
1: Um, I do these procedures because patients have generally two problems. Uh, Inability to do activities, uh, not necessarily day living, but just to recreate. And then uh, at times patients come who have larger demanding, more demanding lifestyles, like elite or professional athletes who can't do their sport because of cartilage problems. The best patient is one who comes and says, my quality of life is impaired because of routine activities, because our margin of improvement generally can deliver in that population. Our worst patient in terms of assuring an outcome is the one who says, I'm fine with everything I do, but if I play 30 minutes of basketball, I get a painful swollen knee, I wanna be able to play 40 minutes. And that's the most challenging patient because our ability to deliver reliably in that population is not as um, um, predictable. Uh, That being said, cartilage transplantation, replacing damaged surfaces with a variety of techniques, donor cartilage, for example, or someone else's meniscus in a meniscus deficient state can lead to a successful return to elite level sports in some people when they otherwise cannot play their sport. And that's the key thing. That discussion about playing in pain, that is uh, germane to a professional or elite athlete because if they can play at an acceptable level, even in pain. I would far prefer that than trying to eliminate their pain uh, when they already know what they own, as long as they're playing at an acceptable level. If their performance is impaired for themselves or the organization, they're not delivering, then you can have a conversation about it. But having it in the context of how it bleeds over their everyday lives is also important because you'd certainly like to know that you're going to deliver deliver something of benefit to that patient uh, because you may not get them back to the highest level sport, but you might improve their quality of life, routine things, and for even high-level recreational activities.
0: Great. Uh, Well, I think we are probably close to wrapping up, um, but Dr. Cole, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, We really appreciate and uh, know that uh, everyone will appreciate uh, your insights on these topics. Uh, So thank you all for uh, listening to this episode of uh, six to eight weeks, and we will look forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to the University of
0: California, San Francisco Sports Medicine podcast featuring Dr. Mira Bundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.